Super Talk Mississippi media production. Come see your locally owned and operated Linton Glass for all your glass needs. No matter what glass you need to replace, you can count on Linton Glass. Call us today at 601-835-4336 or find us on the web at lintonglass.com. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. And welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino. Oh, pardon me, it's Will Easton for the vacation. Yes, sir. Rhino in the Element Well studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. We're kicking off a brand new week. It was a delightful weather over the weekend. Oh, so nice. Man, it was... Uh, Hinting of spring, was it not, at a minimum? It got a little cool Saturday night. Yeah. If you stayed out late like I did. It uh, did. But very nice yesterday. Today's a little cloudy here. Yep. But I think this week's going to be fairly nice. Highs in the 80s. Wow. That truly is uh, getting us a little closer to the old spring, is it not? Uh, A welcome sight. I noticed yesterday along my route... Uh, to Mass, I usually go east and west via the Natchez Trace for Mm -hmm. three or four miles, two or three miles, that many of the trees are budding out, pushing out leaves. That's a surefire sign. The daffodils and the the various grasses are green. My yard's starting to look a little shabby, so I think the old lawnmower is going to have to make its first appearance soon. I love it. We got Ashley Edwards, a coastal Mississippi entrepreneur, former president and CEO of the Gulf Coast Business Council, also writes columns for Super Talk Mississippi News on the program today at 1120. It's Monday. That means a two-hour show. Ricky Matthews, Super Talk Outdoors, will uh, be on the uh, host this show, I should say, at 105 or 1205, 1205 today. So... So used to talking about uh, Mr. Azar's show that follows ours on uh, Thursday and Friday. So AT&T says they're going to credit customers a full day for the service outage on Thursday. Now, you can do the math on that. That amounts to an average, I think they said, of about five bucks a person. And by the it's way, it's got to be worth more than five dollars. I mean, what's your cell phone service for a month? That'd be 150 bucks a month. I know, but still, come on. They knocked a lot of people out of business. Well, what that shows is just how valuable your your service is, right? If if you're paying 150 bucks a month for it, 
and it's worth more than $5 a day, which is roughly what that computes to be, perhaps that means they undercharge for it. We need what our friend Richard Schwartz, who was just in here, says. Pain and suffering, Gerard. We need pain. We had pain and suffering. Yeah. Pain and suffering. Well, if that were the case, then it'd be about 750 bucks a month if you were on the hook for that. So, by the way, this is consistent. Uh, some, you know, I talked about last week with what we call in the industry a service-level agreement, and there is some fine print in your contract that basically says, hey, if you're down for any uh, time, this is what our service level is, our service level agreement is. It's just a, the uptime we guarantee. And if you're down for any amount of time outside of that uptime, we start issuing credits. That's consistent. By the way, that's been available. It's been a standard in the telecom industry going back to the 70s. It's nothing new. It, it uh, was adopted by the cloud services industry as well, the IT services industry in particular with respect to cloud services, service-level agreement. We had those in our contracts with our customers. And uh, you commit to a certain amount of uptime, usually defined as a percentage. Ours was 99.995%. And any any amount of time you're down outside of the 99.995% guaranteed availability will issue credits. That's very common in the cloud services industry. And it's, and it's um, something that was adopted from the telecom industry. So I felt like from the beginning, i got to tell you guys that what was likely going on here was some sort of software upgrade glitch. It just it stood to reason, having been in the networking industry for over three decades, that despite your absolute best efforts to test, 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 and to have a completely uh, replicated test environment, what I mean by replicated, a twin of the production environment, you still, you still can blow it. And just and what I mean by that is, despite all the testing, when when you apply these p- software patches in production, in the production environment, something crops up you just could not anticipate, could not account for, could not test. The next thing you know, you're down. So what do you do? There usually there's some sort of what are called rollback procedures to go back to where you were before you apply the software update when everything was operational, or there is um, uh, just a patch. You figure out the the bug, the glitch, the problem, and you just apply more software to patch it. Of course, you know you got risk when you do that. Your your patch fixes one problem. It's like plugging a dike, and then it causes a problem elsewhere. So, But that's uh, that's what's going on. So it was not a cyber attack. It was not solar flares. I saw all that stuff being spread around. That was all um, really kind of nonsense. Uh, speaking of glitch, I think Nikki Haley hit one in South Carolina over the weekend. Yeah, she sure did. She had a little problem <laughs> on Saturday. It's uh, roughly 60-40. The, the key takeaway for me of, of that primary, the, the president, the former president, cruised to victory. No, no surprise there. And, of course, we're headed into Michigan, and then, which is a huge swing state critical for any Republican candidate to carry Michigan to win the White House. Critical. Maybe essential. And then it's a Super Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, But that's coming up. But the big takeaway for me 
was in exit polls, 59% of those who voted for Nikki Haley said, I will not vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, that, And that's a concern. And that makes you sort of scratch your head about the president's path to victory, the former president's path to victory. Again, thinking about how that works in, um, uh, in the Electoral College. That's a, big, that's a big issue, and it's a big concern. And so, by the way, for what it's worth, in head-to-head polls, Nikki Haley versus Joe Biden, her margin of victory in the polls is considerably more than President Trump's, which tells you that based on that exit poll of 59% saying I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump, even though I voted for Nikki Haley and, I, and I'm a Republican, um, that, that is of some concern. Now, it is true that in South Carolina there are open primaries, just like there are here in the state of Mississippi. And you can vote in any primary you want. So is it possible that some Democrats voted in the South Carolina Republican primary? Sure. Uh, what I don't know, and I haven't looked it up, is is uh, if voters affiliate with a party. Because, you know, in Mississippi, we don't. You don't register to a party. That's why you can vote in any primary. The, the uh, restriction is if you vote in the primary and it, it advances to a runoff, that you cannot cross between the primary and the runoff. Can't vote in the Democrat primary and then the Republican runoff, vice versa. But that is telling, I felt like, based on the outcome of that election, that there are a lot of people that just can't come to grips with Republicans, I mean, with supporting the former president. He's got an ironclad, no doubt about it, ironclad, staunch base, no doubt about it, that's going to support him to the end. But there are a lot of people, and there are a lot of people, by the way, I think it's actually lopsided. People that did vote for Nikki Haley, there are more who cast their vote for Haley as an anti-Trump ballot than they did pro-Haley. The protest vote. Right. So-called protest vote. So that's a concern as well. Uh, There's no doubt about it. It's a divided party right now. Big time. Uh, But Donald Trump is the de facto leader of the party. I mean, he's in the driver's seat at this point. You can't really see any way that he does not win the nomination. But then it's off to the races, to the general. One of the problems that the current president has in the state of Michigan is uh, his support for funding Israel in a state that has a large Muslim population opposes that. Mm -hmm. And he's got trouble there. And we'll see how that works out because you got Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who I think is chomping at the bit to be a, his VP and honestly wants to be the president. I think you'll see her on the ballot in 2028. By the way, she'd be disastrous in my view. So uh, when we come back, by the way, this issue of expanding Medicaid has been front and center in our legislature. And uh, I have some thoughts about uh, what's going on there and, and um, what I think the legislature ought to do. That's on the other side of the break. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. 
That would be Paul Revere and the Raiders, wouldn't it? Yes, sir. A lot of people think that uh, the lead singer, what the heck was his name? Mark something. It wasn't Paul Revere? No, it wasn't. <laughs> he was he was a keyboard player. Blind-headed guy with really? keyboards, yeah. I think I would have meant it, Mark. He was a lead singer. Um, but we're back in the Element Well studio. We got a lot of economic news scheduled to be released this week. The Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation, that's the personal consumption expenditures, PCE, the acronym for short price index. That's coming out on Thursday. We got uh, another week, uh, busy week for earnings reports. Workday, Salesforce, Paramount, Global, Lowe's, Anheuser-Busch, InBev, among those reporting uh, this week. And then we'll get some updates from the real estate market. Man, that's really got people reeling. Uh, New home sales today, later on. Home prices tomorrow, pending home sales on Thursday. So, uh, you know, Will, I I talked last uh, week about having the honor and privilege to be invited to the Capitol to speak to the uh, members of the public health and Medicaid committees, both from the House and the Senate, a joint, so-called joint hearing, just to talk about uh, one issue that they're all deliberating right now, and that's whether or not the state of Mississippi should expand Medicaid, which is a provision that was included in the Affordable Care Act that extends Medicaid coverage to non-disabled, sometimes it's described as non-disabled adults, sometimes it's it's described as able-bodied adults. Just pick whatever you want. Why non-disabled? Why that discernment and distinction in adults? And that's because existing Medicaid is available to disabled adults, to blind adults, to children, based on the household income. There are different eligibility thresholds from a household income perspective. And it's also available to low-income seniors as well. Uh, most people are surprised to find out that we don't have Medicaid in Mississippi, for example, without expansion and traditional Medicaid passed in 1965 isn't just health care for poor people. It's health care for poor people who are blind, disabled, um, over 65, or children who live in households where the household income is would be considered poor, impoverished. In fact, of the 800,000 or so on Medicaid in the state of Mississippi, which is sad unto itself when you think about a state with 2.9 million population, 400,000 of them are children. So you've got a lot of children who qualify for Medicaid that live in a household where the caretaker slash parent parents do not because their income doesn't. Uh-huh. We don't have a program for that because they're able-bodied. They're working. Let's say they're working. They're making $20,000 a year. 
They qualify their children. They're taking care of a child. Their children qualify. They don't. There is no such program. You follow what I'm mm-hmm. saying there? So, uh, but nonetheless, that expansion, though, would make it available to them. If their income is below 138% of the federal poverty level, but, but, um, and they're able by, they're not presently uh, eligible for Medicaid. If, for example, you're enrolled in Social Security, uh, additional enhanced Social Security benefits, you're, you're disabled, for example, you get supplemental incomes, what they call it, SSI, you're automatically qualified for Medicaid. A lot of people don't know that. And if you are, that means you're technically not an able-bodied adult. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Otherwise, you shouldn't qualify. Now, I'm not telling you that those systems are perfect, that they absolutely make sure that only those who legitimately qualify and need that safety net are, are enrolled in the program. No, I don't believe that at all. In fact, the CBO has reported as much, that there's some $80 billion a year, $80 billion of improper payments is what they term it in Medicaid, $80 billion. Because it's complicated as all get out, and it is administered by the states. We don't have enough people to check all this eligibility. And again, I'm not condemning Medicaid here at all. I think Drew Snyder does a fantastic job. It's an impossible job. Maybe the hardest in the whole dang state is to run the division of Medicaid. But limited resources, limited access to information, a state where we have a lot of people that don't have bank accounts, don't file tax returns. It's pretty difficult to determine if someone's eligible for any program, honestly, when it's based on household income, which is virtually all of them. Like TANF, who could not even consider that the big TANF scandal with our Department of Human Services. So my feeling is this. It's really twofold. First, just as I said last week, we don't have enough information. We just don't have enough information. Once you sign up, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And if for some reason we underestimate materially the number who are eligible and they flock to Medicaid and sign up, even though under the expansion coverage group, even though the federal government funds 90% of coverage of the expenses, in the expansion coverage group, the state's responsible for 10. Well, that could be a lot, as much as 150 to $200 million. But again, depends on how many people sign up. We don't know. We don't know how many people in the state are, are eligible based on their income. I've not seen any reports that say that, that currently get their coverage from their employer. I dare say it's not very many because of the, the expensive nature of employer-provided coverage. We don't know. So before, I think we just say, well, we would have way more people signing up than we estimate. Doesn't it make sense to get what the exact possible total risk is? I wouldn't make a business decision without knowing my total possible risk. So we don't know that. On the other hand, it's also not accurate to say that Okay, this billion and a half that the federal government would infuse into the state, which, by the way, doesn't go directly to the Medicaid enrollees. It goes to the providers, mostly hospitals. It's not fair to say that that's zero, that that's of no value. Of course it is. 
And it's also true that in every state, and all I'm going here, I tell you where I'm going with this is, I've seen so many dang reports from the proponents. I've seen so many dang reports from the opponents, including detailed financial analysis. You can pretty much twist and turn these numbers to make them say and support whatever position you want. And almost all of it is somewhat estimated. And I'm not saying it's not estimated with some research, but it sure would make a lot more sense if somebody could tell me, for example, how many employers, this is one one data point, how many employers in the state of Mississippi who have more than 50 employees and thus are required by the federal government to offer so-called affordable care uh, to their employees do not, and are thus paying penalties to the IRS, because that's what it triggers. How many people, uh, employers, are offering coverage in the state of Mississippi to their employers, but it's not affordable as defined by law. And thus, their employees, where it's not affordable for an employee, can go to the ACA exchanges, buy subsidized coverage, and that triggers a penalty. How many are paying those penalties? Does anybody know? I've never seen any data. I can't find any, by the way. I've looked. I can't find any. Specifically, how many small employers, that means they have fewer than 50, offer coverage? How many don't? Because what the opponents are saying is, well, gee, instead of Medicaid expansion, they just need to go get a job and get coverage from their employer. Okay, so let me get this straight. They make $14,000, $15,000 a year. And then let's say the employer covers half of employee coverage. Which is about nine grand a year, so it's forty five hundred bucks out of pocket. Plus, they have deductibles and copays and coinsurance, which can max out at ninety five hundred bucks a year. Next thing you know, all your total gross pay is eaten up by health care. Well, that's not practical either. Somewhere in between has got to be some viable solution. Um, and it's also true that there are hospitals in our state that are providing health care services and they're not getting compensated for it because folks show up in the hospital, in the ER without insurance. No Medicaid, no Medicare, no private insurance, but they still get covered. But the other big thing is how many of those cases are showing up at the ER that were preventable had they had access to primary care? And you're not going to get access to primary care in general unless you've got insurance. You just can't walk in a primary care clinic and say, hey, I'm here for some free a free wellness check. Likely not to happen. Pretty rare, I would say. So you end up burdening the ER. Bottom line is, we need a whole bunch more information. And i got one other thing to add to this decision as well on the other side of the break. From the Seabrook. You're listening to Middays with Gerard. Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Say, oh, 
Element Well Studio, the Classics Four. It's a good uh, YouTube video of them performing that live. It may have been on Ed Sullivan's. Was there a fact. Classics One, a Classics no. Two, no, Classics no. Three? But it was the '60s. We did stuff like that. <laughs> we, I've always wondered about that. I love that song. Yeah, it's it a great a one. Song. But I always wondered if there was other classics. Uh, also, I think the same group did Stormy. The, Maybe the song so. Stormy. I'm pretty sure that was the Classics Four. Yeah. They had a very unique style when he sung there, the lead singer. That's a great song. It is a great song. So we're just talking about this issue of Medicaid expansion. So my position is you need more data. That doesn't mean discontinue discussing it. No, in fact, it means just the opposite. I think you guys down at the legislature, you ought to stay up morning, noon, and night seven days a week until you get all the data to inform yourself. Adequately Zig to make Ziglar, this the great Zig Ziglar used to have a line that I always loved, and he said, it's hard to change someone's mind, but it's easy to show them new information and get them to change their mind. That's absolutely true. I agree with that. The great Zig Ziglar. Yeah. yeah. So the other thing I just wanted to add to the mix that I aptly described as the elephant in the room in a recent article I wrote is that, does it not make sense to at least address some existing financial obligations before you think about legislature adding to the expense pie and and assuming new financial obligations when you got one that's hanging over you like a sword of Damocles that's yet to be addressed, and that's PERS. Now, that doesn't mean discontinue the discussion on anything else. It just means that you got this aging legacy obligation that's not going away. And I haven't seen anything yet material that addresses it. And here's the financial reality that folks aren't thinking about. If you look at the state's share of Medicaid, um, should the state expand, it's estimated, like I said, in that 150 to $200 million a year figure. Now, you've also got to consider when you look at that annual amount, that there's additional tax that will be collected. It's called the premium tax from the third parties who operate the managed care component of Medicaid in the state of Mississippi. They're essentially given a, a, a premium, a payment from the state of Mississippi, from the division of Medicaid. They pay a tax on that. So that's $45, 50000000 bucks a year, depending on you know how much it amounts to. The, the total again, the total number who sign up is an estimate. So of the hundred fifty million or so that to to hundred and eighty million or roughly, let's just split the middle between the one fifty and the two hundred, you got forty five, fifty million coming off of that and the new taxes, new revenue coming in. Then you got some revenue coming from the hospitals as part of that as well. Just like we did in September, when we got the waiver from CMS to reform the payment model of traditional existing Medicaid, that was, what, $700 bucks. The governor fully supported it. I did, too. The uh, hospitals. But remember, the message over and over again from the governor is this won't cost the state of Mississippi any, anything because we're going to collect this from the bed tax from the uh, hospitals. It'll cover the state's portion of this additional uh, money coming from the federal government. It's... And while I completely understand and support that, 
I got to be honest with you. This is how we get $34 trillion in debt. Hey, as long as the federal government's paying for it. And it's not just Medicaid, by the way. Let me be clear. Don't we all kind of, we're conditioned to think that way. We don't even, oh, well, that's not real money. That's coming from the federal government. Right. And where's that going? To the debt? To the deficit? But they don't have to balance the budget. We do in the state of Mississippi, by law. We don't have that luxury. Just print money and cover that excess. We can't do that here. We don't have any printers. Right. We don't have we don't have the old printers. We don't have the password to the yeah. printers. It's not hooked to our Wi-Fi. It's connected to AT&T. It's down. <laughs> uh, uh, but so, uh, and it's true. It's true. But we have this. We have this ob- daunting obligation. But here's where I was going. So let's take that 150, 180 million states portion. Let's take the the um, uh, premium tax, 45, 50 million, boom. Now you're down to 110, 120. And then you've got this shift. This is crazy, Will, but you've got some people currently enrolled in traditional Medicaid who would qualify for expansion, the coverage group and expansion, and the state could shift the people off traditional Medicaid that do. Pregnant women is one that comes to mind. That's a, an existing coverage group on and postpartum as well. Uh, which we passed last year in the state of Mississippi. So you could shift them to expansion, and rather than getting 78% from the federal government of the total cost of that, we could get 90 So that reduces our cost. So you'd have to figure that in. You see where I'm going with this? So, you got again, you got to come up, what's the actual out-of-pocket number to the state of Mississippi? The Hospital Association did a pretty good job, I think, of presenting that, although it looked to me like, some of those figures were double counted, and that's that's for another day. But it's not a material amount, in my view. But PERS, it it's got a real cost. We know what that is. Uh, we we don't have to guess and estimate at that. It's not like, well, how many people are going to sign up for this thing? We already know what that cost for the state. I think to stabilize the PERS fund, if it's done through state funding rather than employee contribution rate. Because the opinion I got said if you raise the employee's contribution rate, you've also got to raise benefits. So that doesn't help. Got more coming in and more going out. Okay, great. You can raise the employer share, but you've heard all the folks at the municipal level say you'd kill us, state, if you did that. We don't have the money. They're already getting squeezed. Right, exactly. So we're expecting the state to cover that force if if that's your decision. But that being said, we got a situation where it could cost the state of Mississippi more to stabilize PERS than to fund Medicaid. It's portion. It's more expensive. It seems to me like you're managing a budget. You've got a pool of money. you got to allocate that money to, just like you do in a business. So much to this, so much to that. This is how much i got coming in. This is what's left over. If you got anything... I don't see how you take those issues up so independently. Again, that doesn't mean discontinue discussing them, debating them, and proposing solutions to both problems. It just means that I don't see how you can do it in a vacuum. I couldn't run a business that way. Oh, well, I'm only going to worry about this part, even though this part over here is like 10x that. Yeah. And that's going to take me down. So... I'm encouraging the legislature to continue the robust debate. I, I'm 
pleased to see that that's what's happening. But I would also encourage them, consider you got this sword of Damocles, like I called it, hanging over their head. It ain't going away, guys. You can kick the can down the road. No doubt about it. Now, I know there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this weekend. I read it. They talked about how Indiana is now experiencing problems because it underestimated the numbers that were going to sign up for Medicaid expansion. By the way, it was done under Mike Pence. Oh, there's another piece to that I forgot from a revenue perspective. The Hospital Association proposed this in 2019, and that is that those who would sign up for Medicaid under the expansion coverage group would pay $20 a month as a premium. Well, if 200,000 people sign up, that's $48 million a year that would defray some of the state's costs. You see where I'm going. Mm-hmm. So between that and the and the um, premium tax, you're almost at $100 million of the 150 that it would cost the state, just in that. And I think it makes sense. A little skin in the game there. We're going to yeah. give you health care coverage. 20 bucks a month is reasonable, even for a person who makes $20,000 a year. I think they can afford that easily. So, But what we hear from folks who oppose it, and that's what the Wall Street Journal said this weekend, this article, which was a very good, well-done article about blowing a hole in the, in the state of Indiana's budget because they underestimated the number who would sign up, even though it's just that 10%. But, the, but I think the Wall Street Journal gets it wrong in saying, well, the federal government's got this huge deficit debt, and, you know, it's just a matter of time. They're going to adjust that 90% reimbursement on the coverage group. I don't, I don't believe that for one second. I don't. I just don't. Is is that they never roll anything back? No. Is well. Look at it this way. Is it stopping the crazy spending now? It, by the way, our deficit is virtually one hundred percent driven by Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid. That's what's driving it. Is anybody talking about adjusting that? When they do, they get their head chopped off. Politically, it's a loser. I don't think that's going to happen. That's not a reason. That's not a legitimate reason. There's some reasons. That ain't one of them. We're coming right back as Kansas pumps us out. Arguably their biggest hit of all time. Great guitar riff right there in the Element Well studio. Listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. Just as good even when closed your eyes. So by the same token, uh, Will, you know, I, I've just got, by the way, informed. I haven't read it yet, obviously, but Speaker of the House, Jason White, just filed the Medicaid expansion bill that would seek a federal waiver, Section 1115 waivers. I'm not optimistic that the Biden administration would approve such a waiver uh, for work requirements uh, 
I also do not believe for one minute that expanding Medicaid would suddenly improve our labor participation rate, which is 50th in the nation, and it has been for as long as I can remember. I think as long as the statistic has been uh, captured. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's the case, and I think there's there's also to protect against this scenario where people are enrolled in their employer coverage, but they qualify for Medicaid based on their income. They make less than twenty thousand dollars a year if they're just an individual, uh, and they would say, "Okay, I can either pay some portion of my coverage with my employer, or I could drop that and shift over to Medicaid." Now that the state's expanded. And I would have zero premium and zero, roughly, out-of-pocket cost. A little bit. Nominal. I I don't know that there's a huge... So there's a 12-month window. That's where I was going. The uh, the speaker, he, he talked about it when he was on with Paul last, that we're going to put this, this provision in the bill that says that a person, if they drop their employer coverage and they wanted to go over to Medicaid to get that benefit... They'd have to wait 12 months. That would be a, a waiver. I don't see that. I don't see CMS approving it. Now, is it possible it could get approved with a new president? Sure. But just as the last cycle where the Trump administration approved waivers for 13 states, 12 of them have dropped it. And they've dropped it because they got sued. I like these consumer groups, right? Bunch of them. Sued them. And it was costing them a fortune to defend it. And they said, oh, uncle. So I think the same thing. We'd, we would uh, be exposed to massive, expensive litigation. So I, I appreciate, honestly, uh, the effort. And I, and, I, and I get it. What, you're try- what they're trying to do is mitigate the risk. Hey, look, we, we don't know how many people could leave their employer coverage and flock to Medicaid if we expanded. We want to protect against this underestimating, such as the case in Indiana, based on this article published in the Wall Street Journal uh, over the weekend. I, I get it. It makes sense. And we're going to have this work requirement. That, too, offers some degree of protection. I, I get it. I just don't see CMS approving it. And, again, under a new administration, if they approved it, which would come about next January when the new administration is in place, I dare say the state of Mississippi would be defended in multiple lawsuits for that, just like the other 12 states were. Um, So Georgia is the one lagging, but its program is a dismal failure. It only expanded, not full expansion, but it expanded up to 100% of the federal poverty level, not the full 138. So it did not get the 90% reimbursement, by the way, from the federal government for the coverage group. And there also, as we talked about Friday, there is a five percentage point incentive for non-expansion states for two years. That's part of the um, American Rescue Plan signed into law by Joe Biden in March 21. That amounts to about 700 million bucks to the state of Mississippi over two years, which really indicates that if you if you um, extend out the math in the financial model, if you will, that the state really wouldn't have any significant cost for five to six years under expansion. So there's, from an economic perspective, there's that's compelling. I don't see how you can say that's not compelling. And then there are estimates that this infusion of nearly $2 billion 
in uh, to the Medicaid program, which is primarily going to be paid to hospitals and other providers who participate in it, would also stimulate job creation. Well, I think it's reasonable reasonable to think that as well, to, to estimate that. If you're going to have $2 billion of economic activity being infused into an industry, that totally makes sense. Now, what that number is, most estimates are ten to 12000 But again, they're estimates. You can look at other states for some guidance there, and uh, they indicate that as, as well. There was some increase, but my biggest fear, honestly, Will, is that the healthcare industry in this country is so upside down financially, not just in Mississippi, but in the country, that it's, it's pushing us towards government single-payer. Because you know what they got? A printer. So it's not like for-profit. They got an inkjet in there right. that's running 24-7. And that's unfortunate, but that's where we are. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break right here in the Element Well Studios. Up next, it's Fox News, Super Talk News at 1120. It's Ashley Edwards. Please stay with us. And now, now. another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studio. It is middays. We're kicking off a brand new week. Got a whole lot to talk about. You saw RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel's going to be resigning here. I think that is uh, at the time of the Super Tuesday, right? I think she's accelerated that time frame. I thought it was going to be after the convention, but now it looks like she's moved that forward. Big news yeah. uh, going on. So. She's out. Um, she is, uh, a lot of folks in the party, I should say, are not happy with her performance at this point. And uh, felt like that could have done better. And uh, Virginia is one place in particular. They thought they could uh, flip the state uh, legislature. And just there's some other areas as well. Fundraising. Fundraising in particular. She's also spent a whole bunch of money, uh, personally. Did you also see... Uh, this deal with Wayne LaPierre, head of the NRA? I did not. I'll be honest with you, folks. That's why I've never joined the National Rifle Association. I've always felt like that guy was a crook. And it turns out he is a crook. And um, he's he's been under pressure for some time to come clean and um, really to – there's a lot, of, a lot of pressure for him to uh, be ousted. And so that has happened – he is now uh, being being asked to pay back a whole bunch of money. I'm looking for it right now. I can't find it, but six point three five million. There you go. So I don't know if you know a lot about this guy, but he has been. He's made numerous trips to Europe, 
at the expense of the members of the NRA, and he goes over and gets tailor-made suits for ten grand, and just all kinds of other little perks and personal benefits that he spent NRA money on. I've I've never been impressed with that guy, but uh, if you're making donations to the NRA, just know that that's where a lot of your money went. I, I know a lot of folks are always hesitant and reluctant, concerned about their money going to various nonprofits that's not going for the purpose that they expect it to go for, and this is this is one of those examples. It's incredible. So what is it, $6 million? Yeah, 6.35. Can you, can you believe that? $6.35 million. Yeah, so I don't know if you're you're looking at all the details there, but it's it's um, essentially using money from the NRA for his, some of his personal little benefits, uh, flying around the like I said, jet around yeah. the world, not the country, the world. I don't know. I said that's like three years ago. This came up the numerous trips to Paris. Well, if you're if you follow the NRA, and I do, uh, Oliver North, Colonel Oliver North, yeah. You know, he was a board member for a long time yep. and basically got ousted because he tried to have a little coup because I think he was uncovering some of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. He basically went to the, the board and said, yeah, there's some stuff going on here. Well, they they stopped the coup and uh, kicked him off the board, I believe. Um, so all the stuff's kind of coming to light now. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Arlen and Wayne County on the ceasefire tax line. So should the state approve, says Medicare, I know they're talking about Medicaid, to cover people in the coverage gap, what happens to the people caught in the new coverage gap created by it? When, Where does it stop when Medicaid covers 100% of the people? That's really not a legitimate question, Arlen. So this isn't um, – so this is what Georgia did, Georgia – let me explain here, Well, There's something called the coverage gap. If you went and Googled, go do it right now. Go Google health care coverage gap. And then I'm going to ask you to uh, click on the images menu option. After you after you Google, I'm thinking you'll get what I'm looking for with just health care coverage gap. How me, uh, health, I Googled health care coverage gap, okay. and I, the first thing I got was KFF.org. How many uninsured are in the coverage gap? Yeah, so Kaiser Family Foundation, probably one of the foremost authorities on everything related to health care policy. But go to images. There's about 8,000 graphics oh, right yeah yeah so and all that really means you it, there's there's um you see this kind of umbrella sort of crescent shape mm-hmm. umbrella at the top and you got what you got is the what the so-called coverage gra- gap or those who don't make enough money follow me here to qualify for subsidies in the ACA exchanges, make too much money to qualify for traditional caretaker coverage group Medicaid, thus they're in the coverage gap. Yes. That's what Georgia did when they got a waiver to expand Medicaid that had a work requirement in it. It's why they only got 1,300 people in the state of Georgia to sign up. So they only they only expanded Medicaid to cover the coverage gap, those in the coverage gap. That means they make less than fifteen thousand dollars a year, but more than about forty five hundred. Think about that. So that the number of people that would fit that gap right. seems small and obviously in Georgia it is. And the only you know why we have a coverage gap? 
Because remember what I said last week? Originally, when the law was passed, all 50 states were going to have to participate in Medicaid's so-called expansion under the Affordable Care Act. It was the Supreme Court that said, hey, you can't require states to expand and add this coverage group as a condition of remaining in traditional Medicaid. That was part of the Supreme Court ruling in 2012. That's why only 40 states have expanded and 10 haven't. That's how we ended up with a coverage gap, because the original theory behind the Affordable Care Act to get to, yeah, universal coverage was, we're going to cover all these people in Medicaid, all these people and the exchanges, and we're going to have 100% universal coverage. And we're also going to impose this penalty on them if they don't, uh, get coverage. That was the idea. That was yeah. the that was the objective. And I talk about that uh, in the article, by the way. That's how we even have a coverage gap. So no, what the state's considering doing is not just extending Medicaid to those that fit inside the coverage gap. That means they've got an income between forty five hundred dollars and fifteen thousand dollars a year. No, the state is considering f- full Medicaid expansion, which means. Anyone whose income is between zero and 138 percent of the federal poverty level, which is about twenty thousand dollars a year for an individual. However, the state f- uh, further wants to stipulate a work requirement. Okay, fair enough, a work requirement, and that's got some nuanced definitions to it as well. And the state also wants to say, and by the way, if you're currently getting your coverage, this is one of the the um, parts of the waiver. If you're getting coverage from your employer and you want to leave that coverage, drop that coverage, and go to Medicaid, you got to wait 12 months. In other words, you'd be without insurance for 12 months. So that, that CMS would have to approve that. I don't – honestly, I must say again, I don't see CMS approving that waiver. I just don't. I could be shocked and surprised, but that would be a departure from what has been the case for the last three years under the Biden administration. What what they may say is, okay, guys, this is this is what – the Biden administration may say, you want the 90% reimbursement? you got to drop the work requirement. you got to drop the 12-month waiting period. That's what they're likely to say. And then the, then the finances fall apart. You see what I'm saying? Then we're back to the standard 78% reimbursement. Next thing you know, the state's portion would be $350 million a year instead of $150 million a year. Uh, it's just that's the complexities of this issue. Uh, I know Thomas and Greenwood believe we're just headed to uh, socialized medicine. The problem is, how do you define socialized medicine, Thomas? We already, to a great extent, have that, and here's what I mean by that. Insurance company profit is regulated based on the medical loss ratio. Um, CEOs of insurance companies, their pay can only be deducted up to $500,000 a year. We've got mountains and mountains of federal and state regulations. Because remember, insurance is regulated at the state level. The, the Department of Insurance basically regulates how the insurers operate. And then you've got federal regulations on top of that. Now, some may call that socialized medicine. What we don't have, for the most part, are health care providers that work for the government. That's what you have in England, where you have true national health and socialized medicine. Up Spain, I, I read uh, not so long ago that Spain is pretty much, if you're a doctor, you get 80000 bucks a year, doesn't matter what you do. And you work for the government. Yeah. And of course, if you need a procedure, you wait two years. You die in the meantime. It sucks. Greece, it's the you, same way. You know, same deal, right? I know yeah. you... you um, they got to travel to... If you're pregnant, you got to travel to the capital city. They put you up in a hotel room. Yep. And wait for you to have your baby. 
You got to have a heart procedure, same thing. So, Thomas, that's true socialized medicine. That's not what we have here. Not even close. And you know it. You know it. So that's unfair to characterize what we have in Mississippi or, excuse me, the United States as true, full socialized medicine. And the fact that 40 states have expanded it and we don't have that scenario, just as Will said in Greece and what I explained about England and other European countries where they have socialized, true socialized medicine, that pretty much proves that point. That's not what's going on whatsoever. Now, the fact that we have 30 million people uninsured in this country, I think that's pushing us closer to so-called single payer until we resolve that. Ashley Edwards up next. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do Who knows? (laughs) It was the 70s. That's right. A lot of uh, fun little substances were being used. (laughs) So a lot of things don't make sense. I would say that that may be their most popular recording ever there. And that was the guy who, was it Eric Carmen? I think so, yeah. All by myself. All by myself. Yep. Exactly right. We're reminiscing a bit. By the way, uh, Paul in the Berg, uh, pardon me, Gary in the Berg, Paul and Meridian, Gary in the Berg, he was uh, he was liking our little our talk. I owe you Friday. a dollar, by the way, you so still, i got to pay you a dollar. That's right, because I guessed one of the songs of the Friends of Distinction, other than the one uh-huh. that you played, which was Grazing in the Grass, uh-huh. a popular tune, but it was... Love or let me be lonely. I happen to know that off yeah. the top of my head. So we welcome into the Element Well studio Ashley Edwards, coastal Mississippi entrepreneur, former president and CEO of the Gulf Coast Business Council, also a Super Talk Mississippi News column contributor. You got a long title there, Ashley. That is a long title. We need to figure out how to simplify that a little bit. Exactly. Well, uh, good to see you. We've been talking a lot this morning about what's going on at uh, in the state. A lot of high-profile matters being discussed down there at the Capitol and, of course, at the uh, at the national, at the federal level as well. Well, did you see this uh, story about Wayne LaPierre, the NRA? I did, I did yes. I wasn't surprised. I mean, this, is, this has been ongoing for years. It has been ongoing for a long time. And, uh, you know, what's amazing about that is, you know, what a what an incredible fall. I mean, the, the power that the NRA and Wayne LaPierre uh, have had for a generation is incredible when you consider it. Well, I, I've always found it, and again, I hope folks don't take this as being disrespectful, but I think it's accurate to say that in a uh, a state such as Mississippi that is very heavily pro-Second Amendment and very heavily pro-life, 
that the first two bullet points you see on any campaign materials by any Republican candidate in the state of Mississippi, right, is I'm pro-Second Amendment and I'm pro-life. That's right. Would you agree? Absolutely. Uh, I would just point this out. That's what all the other ones say, too. So it's not, it's not really a distinction, but it, it is powerful, and I think it's necessary to establish. Uh, but the, the other thing you often see is, hey, look, I've been endorsed by the NRA. I would say that's a badge of shame, not honor, given this guy and his exploits. Well, you know, it's interesting, Gerard, and the NRA, uh, you know, very smartly built their foundation under the ability to play in politics and and allow for uh, really every elected official from the right for a generation to need their endorsement. Yeah. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see how that goes going forward. It's Good not going to change the commitment of these candidates to the Second Amendment. Sure. But certainly that organization has got a black eye of epic proportions. Yeah, I mean, the Second Amendment and the NRA are not inextricably linked, as I think right. has been previously thought. And this, I think, uh, even goes further to sort of blow a hole in the theory that, oh, yeah, NRA, Second Amendment, see, I'm Second Amendment. You can be pro-Second Amendment without being endorsed by the NRA or a staunch supporter thereof. And and uh, I, I think this really... Um, suggest that indicates that, and it's it's a shame you don't want to see anybody serving in these positions where they're essentially abusing their power. In this case, Mr. Lapierre, and uh, helping himself to the kitty here, and, and people aren't sending in contributions for him to take these expensive uh, private jet flights to Paris to buy ten thousand dollar <laughs> tailored suits. Right? Oh, no question about <laughs> it. Well, and look, and I mean, I, in full disclosure. Um, Many years ago, I became an NRA life member. So you can imagine how many people in Mississippi are in that same boat and looking now. Because, and it, you know, uh, I remember when I was a kid, my dad was an NRA member and American Rifleman magazine coming in the mail and how excited I was to get the new copy of American Rifleman. And, you know, and, uh, and, you know, now it's, uh, it's really a shame. It's, it's, it's a shame when individuals take the work of an organization and are able to torpedo it with these types of actions. Yeah, totally agree. All right, so I, I know you've been paying attention to what's going on. We hadn't talked in a while on the national scene. These primaries keep rolling out <laughs> one after another. South Carolina, of course, Saturday night, the home state, a former governor, Nikki Haley, challenging uh, Mr. Trump, uh, the only one remaining, essentially, on the Republican side. Were you surprised at the outcome? I wasn't surprised at the outcome, I think. Nikki Haley maybe performed a touch better than I had expected based off of some of the polls that have been coming out. Uh, I found it interesting being a coast guy that Nikki Haley's strong section of that state was coastal South Carolina. Um, you know, that probably would not be the case in Mississippi. Uh, so it was interesting to see how that how that breakdown occurred geographically. Uh, but, you know, I think everybody expected going into it that Donald Trump was going to win. But, you know, along those same lines, Gerard, I think that's maybe one of the most important takeaways. When South Carolina voters went in to vote on Saturday, very few of them had any doubt about what the outcome would be. And four out of ten of them still went to vote for somebody else. And if I'm in the Trump campaign, not you know, no spin here, if I'm in the Trump campaign, that's scary to me. Yeah, in fact, uh, The Hill, uh, one of the, the uh, sources that I, I like to uh, peruse on a regular basis, one of their writers, Farrah Griffin, says, and I'm quoting the, the title of the article, Haley's South Carolina results should be a, quote, five-alarm fire for the GOP. I actually agree. Absolutely. You, 
I absolutely agree with that. I mean, and you couple that with some other dynamics that we're seeing. Uh, you know, taking a step back, Gerard, I think the interesting thing about this race that is so much different than ev- every other presidential race in my lifetime and your lifetime, you essentially have two incumbent presidents running against each other. That's true. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is an incumbent That's as it true. relates to the Republican Party. When an incumbent president is in the financial condition that the Trump campaign finds itself in now, the Save America PAC is not in good financial shape. I think I read an article the other day that said the RNC had less less cash on hand since 1993, and you've got four out of ten people voting for someone else when it when everyone already knows that he is going to be the Republican nominee. Right. That is that is absolutely a five alarm fire. I think Farrah Griffin is absolutely correct. And sixty percent in exit polling of those who voted for Ms. Haley said they wouldn't support the former president in a general. Right. That's right. I mean, that's the five alarm fire to me because you need them all. Well, and let's be honest. Um, what we had here going into this election year with the possibility of of various Republican candidates that might have won. You could argue that it was known that Trump was likely going to get the nomination. But let's just say, for example, a DeSantis or a Nikki Haley. This was going to be a referendum on Joe Biden and Joe Biden's policies. Joe Biden is sitting in the catbird seat right now because he is making sure that the 2024 election is going to be a referendum on Donald Trump. And that is very, very dangerous for the Republican Party. Uh, My old boss, Haley Barber, used to say politics is about winning elections. (laughs) You know, policy is a much different thing, but politics is about winning elections. No doubt about it. And Republicans, it concerns me, Gerard, because it seems that Republicans are trying to find every conceivable strategy to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, Joe Biden is probably the most beatable incumbent president in a generation. Totally agree. And with the fundraising that we're seeing, the, the the types of things that we're seeing happening in these primary states, and keep in mind, general election is so much different than a primary. These are committed Republican voters that are going to the polls and casting their ballots. And if you can only win 60%, knowing that nobody in the Republican Party still has to make their mind up about what they feel about Donald Trump. Yeah. Everyone has their mind made up now. Those numbers are not going to move towards the general. And, of course, where it matters, as you well know, something we talk about on the program all the time, it's about about a dozen counties in four states. That's really what it comes down to. You got it. And and so it's hard to gauge at this point the sentiments. Um, You know, you can look at some of the polls, but I don't know how telling they are with with the election still um, five, six months out. Uh, and, and what could happen between now and then could, could, that could sway these so-called swing voters in the swing counties in the swing states, which means it's just totally up for grabs. This, there is one um, data point that is fascinating to me, and that is that Nikki Haley, uh, in most polls, actually beats the current president in a head-to-head general election match by a wider margin than does the former president, Donald Trump. He's much closer in the polling than is Nikki Haley. A much wider margin, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like 10-point difference, right, between Nikki and, I think, the president. In I fact, saw. there was one poll uh, released about three weeks ago that had Nikki Haley winning by 17 points. That is incredible. Okay. And most, and most showed that uh, the former president, the current president, within the margin of error. That's right. Right? Dead heat, essentially. Yeah, exactly. We got Ashley Edwards in uh, the Element Well studio. The raspberries bumping us out once again. We're coming back, folks. Stay with us. 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. One, two, three. One, two, three. Back in the Element Well studio, it's Ashley Edwards in with us today on a shortened show because it's Ricky Matthews, Super Talk Outdoors at 12.05, and we're cruising towards that right now, Will. So, um, on the ceasefire text line, I read that 40% of Haley voters voted for Biden in the last presidential election. I have a hard time believing 40% of those who supported Ambassador Haley were Democrats or in South Carolina and voted for uh, Biden last time. I, I can't imagine they'd go out and cast a vote knowing that's not going to make a difference in a primary, which is all about securing delegates. There's a lot of talking points that the Trump camp is putting out to that extent. There's no question that, that Nikki Haley's getting some crossover. I mean, there's no question about it. We saw it in New Hampshire. Um, but what we can't forget as well, and every state has different regulations as it relates to this, but a lot of these people had to be registered for a party. I mean, when they have these party registration states, yeah. you know, Democrats can't just show up and vote Republican in every state. Now, in Mississippi, it's a little bit different. It's different. But, but it's not that way in every state. Yeah, yeah, not that way in every state. But, but look, I, I do think that the bottom line here is, and, and what I'm watching for um, – Nikki Haley has stuck in it. Of course, the news came over the weekend that the Koch brothers were, were going to pull the funding from her campaign. Right. She had a big infusion of cash. She's still been raising a lot of money. Yep. If Nikki Haley were to take the route to be the no-labels candidate or run as a third-party candidate, um, and you have to ask yourself, why has she chosen to stay in? Look, everybody in her campaign knows right now she is not going to be the Republican nominee. Right. They know this. That's absolutely right. Um, and frankly, it doesn't necessarily make her in the lead for 2028 going against Trump harder and harder and harder. So yeah. I think it's an outside possibility you could see a third-party run. And if that were to happen, um, you can put a fork in this election. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So so just to the point I made a minute ago, here's another text on the ceasefire text line. This is A.J. from Hattiesburg. I think Haley is a surrogate for the Democrat Party. 15 to 17 percent of her votes were Democrats. So, okay, is it 15 to 17 or is it 40? It probably, I don't know that we know, honestly. And and it, without a, a, an explicit affiliation that's more permanent in nature, because there's all kinds, as you know, uh, rules about you can just make that switch real quick right before you go vote. I mean, depending on the state, because it's all governed at the state level. And as you indicated, Ashley, we don't associate with the party uh, in the state of Mississippi. You can vote in any primary you want. It's just that once you're in that primary, you can't cross over when it comes to a runoff. And, right. you know, a lot of people will hold off in a primary and then say, I'm just going to wait and try to influence, even though I'm not uh, generally su- supportive supportive of candidates in that party, I'll wait for the runoff, and then I'll be able to influence the candidate I want to emerge in a runoff. Absolutely. In politics, Gerard, as you well know, you have to pray, you have to face the brutal facts, yeah. and there is a. It takes a lot of mental gymnastics, right, to try to 
take the position that there are not a large number of committed Republicans who simply are not going to vote for Donald Trump. It is th- totally that is agree. that is the truth. And there are a lot of folks that don't want it to be the truth, and they try to find a lot of excuses for it to not be the truth. But the truth of the matter is, Republican Party is split on Donald Trump. He has the majority of his base right now. He's been getting 60% on average of these votes. But I think it is not a stretch uh, to say that there are three to f- three to four in ten Republican voters who have made the decision that they're not going to support Donald Trump. I, I could name some right now. I won't because it's it's private sure. anecdotal conversations, but and it won't make a difference in the state of Mississippi. No, it won't. You know, it, he it won't he will win Mississippi. Yeah, well, that, I mean, I think we can call that one right now, yes. kind of like Fox News did on Saturday night, like two minutes after the polls closed, right? right. Which wasn't exactly going out on a limb. But again, Michigan is going to be important to pay attention to. Uh, that's coming up. And then we have Super Tuesday. And it's it's Michigan. It's Wisconsin. It's Pennsylvania. It's the same route that uh, essentially paved the way for Donald Trump to win in 16. Same deal. It was Pennsylvania. It was Michigan. It was Wisconsin. When those fell, who could forget the folks at MSNBC crying virtually on the air that night, especially when they called Pennsylvania. That shocked right. everybody. But it's by the slimmest of margins. I think when I went back, Ashley, and did the math on that, the way I've described it is, he won by the number of people in Bryant-Denny Stadium on a sunny SEC football day. That's crazy when you think about it, there being 330 million people people in the country and what 150 60 million people vote it came down to 105,000 well and i you know along those lines gerard i think you also have to call a spade a spade i i am flabbergasted at trump's continued insistence that the republican base should not engage in early voting Right. I mean, there just seem to be so many pieces of propaganda that come out of the campaign that just seem like he's shooting himself in the foot. Democrats have embraced early voting. It has been very controversial. It is the source of a lot of the election issues that we always hear about. But the truth of the matter is, it's legal, it's, it's legal. statutory, That's right. and it banks votes. And if you're telling your folks, hey, it's corrupt, don't do it, and you have a snowstorm the day of the election, you better watch out. I mean, it, it does not make pragmatic sense. I would say it ensures Donald Trump will lose. It does. It ensures it, because they are masters at that. Yeah. And this idea of, of uh, legal ballot harvesting, which exists, for example, in Pennsylvania, they're going to exploit that again. Now, they're going to be in the nursing homes, you know this, where there's folks who are not mobile, cannot get to the polls, and but they can vote absentee, and they're going to be making their rounds. Let me help you fill that out. And in that state, virtually anybody can do it. And, and it's legal. And even if they, even in states where it's more restrictive, I can't remember all the different restrictions, but a lot of people can fill those requirements, can satisfy those requirements, and sit down and help them check the boxes. That's happening right now. Happening, and it will happen. And Democrats have gotten smart about it. Uh, and look, that's not to say that Don, that uh, Joe Biden doesn't have an incredible number of weaknesses. He he is a very weak candidate. Um, I think had any Republican other than Donald Trump been nominated, the likelihood is Joe Biden would have been a one-term president. Donald Trump has his own weaknesses, and right now those two are competing with each other. Um, and it's becoming a referendum on Trump and MAGA policies yeah. and re- pulling out of NATO and Fear not supporting Ukraine. And, and so this is playing into the Democrats' hands. Uh, the Republicans are letting that 
happen. And we just have to be clear about the fact that this is a choice the Republican Party is making right now. Yeah, that's absolutely right. All right, let's um, let's turn our attention to inside the state. Uh, perhaps the uh, arguably the highest profile issue of all is the the one of uh, the state considering expanding Medicaid. That's been available since 2014. Is the first year that Medicaid, so-called Medicaid expansion, was available to the states. By the way, the federal government reimbursed it at a hundred percent initially, a hundred percent to ninety-five to ninety-three, and it landed at ninety. That's permanent. That means the federal government's share of that coverage group. It appears we have a Speaker of the House. I just learned, by the way, for the benefit of the audience, that uh, the Speaker has, in fact, filed a bill to expand Medicaid in the state of Mississippi. That would suggest to me that he supports it, with, of course, the caveats of work requirements and uh, this 12-month waiting period for those who are currently enrolled with their employer under coverage. The lieutenant governor has indicated he supports it. i got to believe leadership's doing what they do, whipping the vote on that right now. Um, what are your thoughts about this issue at this point? Well, you know, it's not a surprise that, that Jason White has supported the potential for Medicaid expansion. I think we saw that coming. In fact, I, when I was on your show the time before, I think we talked a little bit about that. Um, it is a very complicated issue. There's no question about it. And I think anybody that tries to simplify it, condense it into a few talking points, is doing us a disservice. Can't do it. Because it's a very complicated issue. Um, I do think that uh, Speaker White's position is probably indicative of the fact that the legislature uh, has been in a different place than the past speaker and, and the governor on this issue. Yeah. And I think it, uh, you know, this is, is symbi- uh, symbolic of the fact that there are a lot of legislators that are hearing from their local constituency that they want to see Medicaid expanded. Um, you know, I come from rural part of Mississippi, and this issue plays a lot differently in some of these rural parts. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, look, I, I think that I think the good news about all this, Gerard, the, despite the fact that the governor's in one place and the speaker's in a different place, and it certainly looks like the lieutenant governor is is probably going to be on the side of Medicaid expansion, is that the fact that the, the fact that we have these differing opinions within the Republican Party likely means that they will work harder to try to get whatever outcome right, okay, and not be fast and quick and. Uh, loose about just coming up with a solution. Because I do think that the debate, the disagreement, um, sort of the battle over information is is a good thing. And, and look, I've read things in the last few weeks that give me some pause from where my position has been on the issue. And so information, I think, is absolutely necessary before anything happens. And that um, has been my resounding message, and I know you, you've heard some about that. And it was last week when I testified, and it was on the program today when I announced that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a position, announce a formal position. The position is you need to slow down, in my opinion. And the other thing that I pointed out is you got this purse thing you got to fix, man. Before you go obligate yourself to future spending, which Medicaid expansion would entail, you got to fix this problem that's that's uh, been going on for about two decades. You got to fix that before you take on anything new. In my view, we got Ashley Edwards in the Element Well Studio. If you can hang around, we'll get, we'll stick sure. around with the talk through the final segment. Be sure and check out. Are we going to do this middays with Gerard Gibbert? On Super Talk Mississippi.
enough to remember using Kodachrome, were you? No. No, I don't. <laughs> what a pain that was, honestly. <laughs> Put that stuff in your camera and take it to the little photo finishing shops and spend money and all that kind of stuff. We're talking to Ashley Edwards in the Element Well studio. So, uh, a little bit more on this issue of Medicaid expansion. So, my position is, actually, uh, first, we need more information I just can't fathom making this decision without really get it, getting uh, complete, accurate, to the best uh, of your ability to inform this decision. And, and no disrespect to the third parties that have put forth data. The problem is, as you know, is anytime you have a complex issue like this, where to a great extent you are estimating. It's not like saying, we're going to put this much money towards this, like like you do in other spending measures, right? It's going to cost this much. And every year you're appropriating that much. That's the law. This is different in that, well, no, actually, this is based on how many people sign up. We don't, And we don't know, honestly, and the, and the other impact of where the, the source of people. Is this people currently insured? Are they uninsured? We don't know. And what's different about this as, um, let, let's just say, an assistance program, call it welfare. This is not direct payments or benefits to the beneficiaries, to the people enrolled. This isn't like SNAP. This isn't like TANF. This isn't like housing assistance. This is money you're paying to the providers on behalf of the people who receive the health care services. This is directly from the Medicaid program in the state of Mississippi, to the people who file the claims against that, those are health care providers. This is not like there's just money in their account for health insurance. That's right. That's not. This is different. And so one of the problems we have right now that I actually think leans towards we'll end up with fewer people signing up, which is probably is completely different than what the opponents say, and it's simply this. Why are they going to sign up? They get it free now. Uh, and unless you go out and promote it and say, and you know who would promote it? The people who get paid for it, the hospitals. Please go sign up so when you show up in my ER, I can get paid something. Because right now I'm getting nothing. I got a friend who's an OBGYN here in town that uh, told me a story a few months ago. You know, the Mississippi State Fair was here in town. Told me that every single year, virtually, someone who works at the State Fair that's that's part of the organization. I can't remember the name of the the corporation that runs these fairs. Travels around the country. Um, inevitably, one of the one of the workers goes into labor, shows up in the hospital, and he ends up delivering. They got no insurance. They got no way to pay. He told me last time. He asked the mother, can you at least get me a stuffed animal for my grandchild as a payment? So. I mean, that, and that's what's complicated uh, about this issue. And I just feel like we just we need a whole lot more information, and, it, and it's difficult to obtain. But you got, and it doesn't mean stop the discussion. I'm not suggesting that whatsoever. And it doesn't mean there's not a problem. And and those who say there's not, they're not being honest either. There is a problem. It's a nationwide problem. Uh, healthcare is no, no question. That is exactly why we are here today because we, because healthcare is a mess in this country. Yeah, our healthcare system is a mess. Um, Obamacare didn't fix the problem. No, nope. um, and so states are left to have to struggle with these issues. And Mississippi is certainly not the only state that has struggled with making this decision. My sincere hope is that the legislative leadership, the governor, lieutenant governor, will work to try to find a compromise solution. 
that a lot of folks can buy into and say, we think this is maybe not a perfect solution, but it gets us farther than where we are today. What I what I would hate to see happen is the legislature pass a bill that the governor vetoes and then it gets overridden. Yeah, I'd hate to see, I'd hate to see that. I would too. And I, and look, I I know that the governor he 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 is uh, very wise and very smart yes. when it comes to signing off on measures that obligate the state for spending. And this would, I mean, no matter how you look at it, even though it may come in a few years, fact is it comes in a few years. Yes, because we do. There are some incentives, and we've talked about all that on the program and other sources of income from a premium, twenty dollars a month to the taxes on uh, the premium tax as well. So a premium paid by the enrollee, I should say, no doubt. So I think the governor wants to make sure we don't overextend ourselves. I'm completely on board with that. But, again, we need more data to figure out. And maybe there's some other things we could do to kind of prevent going over that. I, I don't I don't know what that might be, but we could get creative. But I'm going to point out again, this purse thing is hanging out there, man, and that's going to cost more than Medicaid ever thought about, honestly, to, to repair it. And it's another gigantic issue. I mean, and you're right, we need a lot of data, and we need people that can take – the universe of the data and make decisions. I mean, for example, you can't make this decision just based on, well, we didn't see better health care outcomes in Louisiana as a result of this. I totally agree. You know, it can't just be some small, finite piece of data in which you base your position. Completely you agree. take a look at all of it and make a good decision. It's, and it's a lot. But I hope that's the action that's taken here and not just rush into anything. And I'm sure we'll be talking to members of the legislature this week now that we have a couple of bills, right? Ashley, appreciate you coming on, man. Enjoyed it. Always a good discussion. Folks, we're out of here today. Ooh, it's a great tune by the great Toto there. We're back in the Element Well studio tomorrow. Ricky Matthews up next. Stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.